0: Napoleon Bonaparte rose to prominence during the French Revolution, which began in 1789 and ended a decade later. During that 10-year period, the French people overthrew their monarchy and established a republic. Which was then, for a time, ruled over by a dictatorship. The dictator, in this case, being Napoleon. But before taking on the mantle of dictator, or rather, if we want to use his formal title, emperor, though he was a dictator ruling over an empire, if we're being pedantic about it, but before he rose to that hallowed position, he was a mere artillery officer from a relatively unknown family of Italian ancestry. There was some minor nobility in his heritage, but it wasn't something he could live off of. He had potential, you might say, but it wasn't a guaranteed thing that he would end up making anything of himself. The French Revolution presented an opportunity for someone like him, someone with the correct background, but also, it turned out, a keen military aptitude, and he was able to shoot up through the ranks, becoming a general by the age of 24. Napoleon was given command over the Army of Italy, which was a French military unit that focused on activity within the Italian peninsula, and a few years later, when he was 26 years old, he fought a campaign against the Austrians and the Italians, and ended up conquering the entire Italian peninsula in the span of a single year. In 1798, he attacked the Ottoman Empire, carving out a radius of control in Egypt and Syria, in part to increase France's trade-related influence thereabouts. But this campaign was also part of a larger series of moves within the Mediterranean region that were intended to give France a springboard from which they could threaten British India, thereby forcing the British to make peace with France elsewhere. Now, some important background, if you don't recall much about this period of European history, is that France was kind of stomping around, taking all kinds of territory and threatening just about everyone during this time frame. What Germany managed to do during World War I and World War II, France did in the late 18th and early 19th centuries. So this action over in Egypt was just one facet of many such actions simultaneously being undertaken by the burgeoning, conquering, newly minted French Republic, which was what France was called from 1792 until 1804, when it became the first French empire. And that shift from one country name and arguably country stance, because an empire is by definition expansionist and controls other states beyond its own borders, that was brought about by Napoleon, who at the end of 1799... Instigated a bloodless coup d'etat, overthrowing the Directory, which was the ruling committee of five bureaucrats who ran the country during the French Revolution. And Napoleon replaced this group of five with himself. And he began calling himself the first Consul of France, though encouraged by the public approval he was receiving as a result of his leadership and his many conquests for the country. He changed his title to Emperor in 1804. And as emperor, he defeated a coalition made up of Britain, the Holy Roman Empire, which, as the joke goes, was not holy, Roman, or an empire. It was pretty much a sprawling Germany that also included pieces of modern Italy, Austria, the Netherlands, and a solid chunk of Central Europe. And Russia rounded out that anti-France alliance. So Britain, the Holy Roman Empire, and Russia were all defeated by Napoleon. Then Prussia got knocked out. And there was a period of peace before the United Kingdom and the Austrians came at France again before being defeated once more, allowing Napoleon to pretty much lock down Europe with the borders and treaty conditions that he preferred, vastly expanding the sphere of influence that France enjoyed. Napoleon wasn't done, though. He invaded Iberia and declared his brother, Joseph, to be the new king of Spain, This proved to be one of the last great victories for the French army of this period, however. After that invasion, France's client states, those that had been beaten into submission previously, began to rebel, first in small ways and then in large ways. Russia in particular was not keen to be dominated by the growing so-called continental system with France at the wheel. So they basically taunted Napoleon into invading them, which he did in 1812. And this turned out to be a mistake. The Russians lost many cities to the invading force, but they were able to wear down his grand army, the main French military force, by attrition. And this spiraled into defeats for the French military elsewhere soon after. Two years later, in 1814, the nations allied against his emperorship managed to invade France, occupy Paris, and capture Napoleon, who they exiled to an island off the coast of Italy called Elba. The following year, Napoleon escaped from Elba and went and recaptured an army, basically. He walked up to this army and said, hey, you coming with me? And they said, yeah. And he marched with that army, retaking control of the country from a group of royalty called the Bourbon Monarchs, who had been placed in power when he was toppled. And the countries that knocked him down that first time were forced to reunite and form another alliance to go fight him again. This new alliance did defeat Napoleon once more, culminating at the Battle of Waterloo and ending his so-called Hundred Days, during which Napoleon once again took control of France, After being exiled, but which ended with him being exiled again, and this time to a far more remote island in the South Atlantic called St. Helena, which is where he died six years later. Napoleon is a controversial character in history for a great many reasons. If you've never taken the time to check out all the details of what he managed to do in such a short period of time, it's really worth a look. His impact on history. In part because of when he was born, and what his status in society was, and the confluence of events that spiraled around him, of course, but also because he seemed to be an outstanding organizational and military mind at a moment where such things, combined with the proper amount of ambition, could have an outsized impact on not just regional, but global happenings. His efforts are credited with toppling the monarchies of not just Europe, but the world, and the spread of democratic liberalism. He spread the metric system around the world, formalized primary education structures, and freed the religiously oppressed from segregated ghettos across Europe. Sure, he may have kidnapped the Pope, but he also ended the Spanish Inquisition. His invasion, and let's call it what it was, his looting of Egypt, are credited with the invention of the field of Egyptology and with the discovery of the Rosetta Stone, His Napoleonic Code spread, enforced, and normalized many modern concepts that we today take for granted. Ideas like meritocracy, equality before the law, property rights, religious tolerance, secular education, local administration, the establishment of grants and foundations to support the exploration and flourishing of the sciences and the arts, the quashing of feudalism and serfdom, and anything that even smelled like monarchical systems. The Napoleonic Code has gone on to influence the legal systems, and in some cases the founding documents, of over 70 countries around the world. But, of course, at the same time, Napoleon was also, arguably, one of the most successful mass murderers of all time. He changed the spin of the globe, arguably for the better, at least through modern lenses, but how many people died as a result of his campaigns of conquest? How many lives were snuffed out because of this one man's ambitions? How much of his conquering was about ego, and how much about ideals? Does it matter, one way or the other? And had he been a less successful commander of a potent army stemming from a nation that was primed for both revolution and empire, would he have been forgiven, as he has been by many, for all the bad stuff he did? If he hadn't done quite so many good things along the way, if he hadn't stopped the Spanish Inquisition alongside kidnapping the Pope, would we remember him for the bad stuff? Would we remember him more like we remember Joseph Stalin, with a focus on the mass killings and atrocities? rather than the broadly positive accomplishments that ran parallel to all of those deaths. But maybe the biggest question here, for the purposes of this episode at least, is how the hell did this guy manage to do all these things to upend and take over his own government a few times? How did he manage to defeat essentially all the major economic and military powers in the world at the same time, or within a few years of each other? A man who thumbed his nose at and toppled many of the traditional powers of the world, powerful families that have been ruling countries since the beginning of recorded history. How did he do all of that and still manage to not be executed? How is it, in short, that Napoleon set the fuse that eventually detonated the monarchal European governmental system? And then when he was caught by the people who represented those systems, and flourished under them. He was exiled, not just once, but twice, after having escaped his first exile to go back and fight again against those same people. How was it that he just kept being relocated despite the risk and the difficulty of such an undertaking, while other people in France but also around the world were still being executed for insulting royalty or the church. They were losing limbs and being for all intents and purposes enslaved for stealing things, for just being born under the wrong circumstances. At this point in history, severe punishments for very small things were very common. The value of a life was not considered to be particularly high. How was it that so many people were facing these severe consequences, and this dude who stomped around and did whatever he wanted, who embarrassed the hell out of these powerful people, managed to avoid those same consequences? What made Napoleon so special to the point that he was immune to the same treatment, the same rules and punishments that everyone else had to live under? Who do you have to be? What do you have to do to become untouchable in that way? That's what I want to talk about today. (laughs) you're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The article I want to unspool today comes from the LA Times, and it's entitled, South African President Jacob Zuma Resigns Under Pressure from ANC. On February 14th, 2018, Jacob Zuma stepped down as the president of South Africa. His party, the African National Congress, or ANC, decided that he needed to go, and backed his deputy, Cyril Ramaphosa, who is, as of the day I'm recording this episode at least, the acting president of South Africa. This outcome, Zuma stepping down and giving in to his party's demands, it wasn't a given. And in fact, there was a great deal of speculation in the days leading up to his usurpation about whether he'd make a clean break, or if he would attempt to reinforce his position and put up a fight, And even till his last official breath while making his resignation speech to the country via a television statement, he maintained that he'd done nothing wrong. He didn't know what all the fuss was about. There was no evidence he was guilty of anything nefarious. It's all a big conspiracy theory plot by his political enemies, and so on. He would resign, he said, despite all that, to avoid violence between members of his party. Zuma initially came to power as a charismatic leader in the fight against apartheid in South Africa. But essentially, as soon as he became president, the abuses of that new power began. He used the position of president to go after his political and personal enemies. He gave uncontested state contracts to his allies and gave out government jobs as bribes and rewards. Zuma used taxpayer funds to upgrade his personal coastal mansion which he justified as quote-unquote security upgrades when he was caught. But those upgrades included a new swimming pool, a visitor center, and an amphitheater. And after a year in office, he had already provided his friends and family members with funds and the proper legal go-ahead to start and take over a slew of companies in a variety of government-connected fields. Perhaps the most visible series of scandals in which Zuma was embroiled involved a family called the Guptas, a name that, in South Africa, became synonymous with government-supported corruption and mutual backscratching between powerful people. From mining to newspapers to TV, the Guptas were able to scale the ladder of success in the country with worrying speed, worrying because they seemed to easily bypass the hurdles other entities in these industries faced and always seemed to have a government mandated wind at their back and the guptas in turn supported the zuma administration and zuma personally in many different ways the guptas were able to use an air force base as a private airport to welcome wedding guests to the country for instance and in return though not officially connected of course zuma's son started out as an intern at a Gupta owned company, only to have worked his way up to the top, becoming a multimillionaire from that work within a few years. The families became so close in their dealings and mutual illegal enrichment that some members of the press and many people in the country began to refer to them collectively as the Zuptas. Jacob Zuma's stepping down, then, after nearly nine years in power, is well past due in the eyes of many. And the Guptas are, consequently, faring quite badly in the region as a consequence of his stepping down. The Guptas are now having trouble securing financing in South Africa, and banks are refusing to do business with them entirely. As quoted in a recent Quartz article about the family and their relationship to the Zumas, one analyst described the sudden shift as a, quote, coordinated act of corporate social responsibility, end quote. In other words, it was almost like this family's power structure was interwoven with Zuma's power structure, and as soon as one was pulled away, the other collapsed in turn. A government, at its most fundamental level, is a mechanism for organizing people and distributing scarce resources. As a part of that purpose, it passes laws that are meant to be obeyed, creates some kind of policing force to ensure people adhere to those laws, and collects taxes to pay for that police force and their military, which protects the country from outside threats, and the infrastructure inside the country, particularly those aforementioned mechanisms that help organize people and resources. When someone comes into a position of power within a government and abuses that power, uses it to enrich themselves rather than help that system run optimally. Or in some cases, enriches themselves while also helping that system run optimally. That's a problem. That person is a parasite attached to an organism which messes with the flow of resources to vital systems. It adjusts all the math involved. But because this parasitism is seldom well-known, or maybe just seldom formally recognized and acknowledged, No new math is developed to deal with it. State accounting, in other words, doesn't take the Zuma Enrichment Fund into account when they're working out taxes and such, which leads to flaws in all of the official ledgers. What's more, being in power allows a person who lacks scruples to reorganize the system they control to better serve their own needs, to warp it, to bend it, so that they become even more enriched over time, which tends to further weaken the overall structure and to make it less capable of performing that main task of organizing, distributing, and protecting. There's a term that isn't very commonly used outside of political analysis circles, which is a shame because I think it fairly clearly illustrates how this kind of thing works. But this term is state capture, And a more specific subcategory of state capture, predatory state capture, is what has been happening in South Africa these years that Jacob Zuma was in charge. Predatory state capture means, in essence, that a small group of people works together to influence government officials and other levers of societal control in order to strengthen their own economic positions. This term was originally used by the World Bank in the year 2000 to describe what was happening in some Central Asian and Central European countries that were making the transition from Soviet communism to a Western flavor of capitalism-fueled liberal democracy. They were going through all the proper paces and making all the right noises, but while that shift was taking place, corrupt groups with influence, sometimes politicians sometimes former spies, sometimes local business people, or mob bosses, they determined the direction the government would evolve, in large ways and small. So these countries ostensibly fell into lockstep with much of the rest of the world, politically and economically, but only superficially. What was happening beneath the surface was controlled by a group of people, we would later come to call oligarchs, who were pulling all the strings, and becoming increasingly wealthy and powerful as a consequence. We have seen this pattern replicated all over the world at various points in history. Today's Russian government is largely controlled by oligarchs, and we've seen similar models in Romania and Bulgaria and, yes, South Africa. You could absolutely argue that governments like the one found in the U.S. is, at times, or always, at least a little bit, depending on your level of cynicism, Controlled to at least some degree by freedom-branded oligarchs, the modern iteration of our lobbying system and court decisions like Citizens United seem to have strengthened this capability and reduced the number and potency of checks and balances that are in place and fully functioning with the intention of keeping things from going over the edge into a full-blown predatory state capture scenario. Just as interesting in its own way is another subtype of state capture often called systemic state capture. Predatory state capture is a government that's captured and controlled by a group of oligarchs, typically operating in the shadows from behind the throne. Puppet masters, you might say. Systemic state capture is when a government becomes enthralled instead by a system and the rules and priorities governing that system. So you could say that liberal democracy systemically state-captured a huge number of governments around the world in the 20th and 21st centuries. This family of liberal democratic systems now determines the course of these governments, where their resources are expended, what's prioritized, who does what, how people are organized, how people are protected, and everything else that falls under the aegis of government mandate. This rather than predatory state capture, could also explain the direction that the U.S. government, among many others, has been taking for the past several decades. You could argue that it's just a different version of capitalism, a different version of liberal democracy that has been taking hold. At other moments in history, pre-Napoleon Europe, for instance, the monarchal system had systemically state-captured most of the governments around the world. And for a while, post-World War II and pre-Soviet Union collapse in 1989, there was a dictatorship by the people pre-communism model that was taking over governments left and right, particularly in Central Asia and Central Europe. That collection of philosophies and priorities came to guide the hand of these governments, capturing them for use toward this collection of goals. So these two types of state capture provide us with a big-picture lens through which we can view the shifts and stances of governments today, but also historically. But I digress. The question I want to ask here, and this is what ties Zuma back to Napoleon as discussed in the introduction, why is someone like Jacob Zuma allowed to just walk away? Why is a man who was entrusted with the reins of power and who then chose to abuse that power to enrich himself and hurt others in order to do it, and who rewove society to suit his own selfish desires and warped politics and told lies and adjusted the course and the fortunes of an entire country for the worse so he could accumulate more wealth and power for himself and his friends and his family. Why is the punishment he faces mere expulsion from government? Why are the forces that be in South Africa taking away the weapon he's been using against all the people he ruled over and abused, but then leaving it at that? Not to put too fine a point on it, but why not haul him off in chains? Why not take all his money, take all his family's money, why not haul off the Guptas and anyone else who worked with him to bleed the government for personal gain, and lock them away forever? Why not return as much of that money as possible to the government for the purposes it was actually meant to serve and either lock him and his ilk away for life after a fair trial to establish the facts, and if acceptable under the country's law, which it isn't in South Africa, but I mention it here for the sake of argument, if acceptable under the nation's law, why not kill him? Why not make an example to anyone who would do such a thing in the future while also trying to set things straight? Why not remove this kind of parasite, not just from government, but from public life, from economic influence, from the world, forever? That may seem like a little much, I know. I'm presenting this argument in this way, as clearly as possible, and to the furthest possible extent, because it seems to me to be an extreme. And I should probably pause for a moment here to make clear that I'm not trying to lump all wealthy, all politically powerful, or otherwise powerful people together. Just like with any demographic group that you might define by some trait or another, there are saints, there are jerks, and there is every other gray tone represented within the range of folks who have money and political privilege. So I don't want to imply when discussing this collection of topics that anyone near the top of the social or economic pyramid, is a bad person. That's very much not the case. There are, however, a collection of incentives and structures in place that result in similar behaviors in people who have such power or who have a lot of money, regardless of what kind of person they might be as individuals. A simple example of this is the way taxes are set up here in the US. In general, folks who make more money who are in the highest echelons of income, make that income from assets, from real estate, from rent they are paid on property they own, from dividends on stocks and coupons on bonds. They don't make their money, or at least not the majority of their money, from a paycheck the way the rest of us do. This difference isn't a value judgment, then, but it is a difference. And the system in most countries favors these types of incomes by granting tax and other benefits to those who earn them. So when we're discussing this collection of topics, keep that in mind. One need not be a horrible person to be part of a system and benefit from a system more than most other people that distributes rights, privilege, and power inequitably. Any of us who found ourselves earning our living in those ways would be part of that same system, and likely would never think twice about it. Adhering to those rules and taking advantage of laws that benefit you is seldom a moral act. Now that doesn't change the secondary consequences that are emergent from these realities, but it's important to delineate them, I think, to demonstrate that simply being wealthy, simply being powerful, is not the same as being a criminal, as being abusive, as being intentionally demographically divisive. But let's loop back around to Zuma and his utilization of his public power for personal and familial enrichment. And more specifically, let's get back to my question about why he was punished with a slap on the wrist instead of some kind of lifelong prison sentence. Think about what he did this way. Here's a man who wielded a million times the power of an ordinary citizen. And he used that power, that massively amplified privilege, to commit crimes Against all the people in his country, he took money meant to enrich the country in myriad ways to build the place up for the benefit of all, and he used those resources to enrich and benefit himself instead. A normal person living in that country who commits a crime may find themselves in jail for their crime. They may be fined into pauperdom. They may become a social pariah for life. In some countries, yes, they may even be executed for their crimes. But this guy, who committed crimes on a completely different scale than what a normal person might realistically be capable of, he gets to walk away with all of his ill-gotten gains. He's maybe lost some face and he's had his personal enrichment machine taken away from him, but he's still better off than how he started. He's only been punished in the sense that a burglar who is caught and told to leave your house and stop stealing stuff, but that he can also keep what he's already taken. He's only been punished in the way that burglar has been punished. Comparatively, this punishment system for government officials makes no sense. The punishment does not come anywhere near fitting the crime. And it's not just Jacob Zuma and arguably... Napoleon Bonaparte, who, remember, was exiled not once but twice for essentially conquering Europe and overthrowing a bunch of governments. It's not just these two figures who were leaders of countries who get off scot-free in this way for doing stuff that anyone else would be locked away forever or killed for doing. A very abbreviated and incomplete outline of the global financial crisis Of 2007 and 2008 goes like this. A bunch of incentives fell into place that allowed banks and other money lenders to benefit from loaning money, especially for housing, to people who were not good bets, people who they knew or strongly suspected would never be able to pay back those loans and would default on their payments. These bankers, knowing this, continued to hand out these loans and then on top of that, packaged the loans together, with halfway decent and strong loans, into packages of debt, basically, to sell to other financial institutions, and to utilize as secondary investments. So they were basically taking an asset they knew was worthless, these loans they knew almost certainly would not be paid back, and packed them together, and because of the nature of the industry and the moral turpitude of many of the people involved... They didn't make those investing in these flawed debt packages fully aware of what they are investing in. They were able to give them ratings that were inaccurate. So all this money was going out the door to fund houses the new owners of those houses could not afford, and the financial institutions in the background were investing more and more money into these chunks of worthless debt, amplifying the bonuses these bankers were making, but creating no new value, except on paper. This bubble. Eventually burst, and banks around the world, including some of the biggest banks in the world, collapsed, while others would have collapsed had they not been bailed out by their governments. People lost their homes, people lost their savings. The banks that were bailed out were bailed out by taxpayer dollars. So the countries making these payouts lost all those funds that could have been spent on anything else because they had to keep alive these institutions that had essentially rotted from the inside out. There were several reasons given for why these institutions should be bailed out, rather than allowing them to collapse and building something new in their place, as would be the case with any other business or organization. One of the reasons was voiced by a former Bank of England policymaker named Robert Jenkins. When he was interviewed about it for The Guardian, he said, quote, "During the crisis, there was a misplaced judgment on the part of authorities that prosecution would undermine further confidence in the banking system End quote." So they had to bail out the banks, or people would lose faith in the banks, which would cause even more problems." That's the logic there. But does acting on that conclusion mean that none of these institutions and bankers would be punished for what they did, for the widespread worldwide consequences of their greed and short-sightedness? Well, there were some punishments leveled, but maybe not as many as you might think. From a 2015 piece in The Atlantic, quote, Since 2009, 49 financial institutions have paid various government entities and private plaintiffs nearly $190 billion in fines and settlements, according to an analysis by the investment bank Keefe, Bruyette & Woods. That may seem like a big number, but the money has come from shareholders, not individual bankers. Settlements were levied on corporations, not specific employees, and paid out as corporate expenses, in some cases, tax-deductible ones. In early 2014, just weeks after Jamie Dimon, the CEO of JP Morgan Chase, settled out of court with the Justice Department, the bank's board of directors gave him a 74% raise, bringing his salary to 20 million dollars." So, not a whole lot in the way of punishment for the institutions or for the bankers themselves, and in some cases those most responsible actually got raises. That article also mentions that more than 1,000 bankers were jailed after the savings and loan crisis of the 1980s. Quite a different response from what happened about 20 years later. So what changed in the decades between those two events? The crisis in 2008 was even larger than the preceding one. So why didn't the bankers, who were knowingly committing misdeeds that went on to have catastrophic consequences for millions of people around the world, why didn't they, with very few exceptions, get punished? One of the major whys here can be explained using a phrase that was most recently popularized during that same 2008 financial crisis. Too big to fail. This phrase actually originates back in 1984 when it was used at a hearing by a congressman who was discussing a decision the government had made to rescue Continental Illinois Bank, which had run itself into the ground because of its own ineptitude and greed, but which, it was argued, was vital to the economic survival of the region. The decision to bail out that bank made some people wonder If the government had just declared that it was possible for such institutions to become so big and so necessary to the continued functioning of some aspect of society or some region's economic well being, that no matter how it floundered, no matter how badly it did, no matter how many bad, corrupt things it got caught doing, it would still be fine. The government would not be able to afford to shut them down or punish them in any significant way. This ruling led to a surge in effort within financial institutions to grow at all costs and to absorb or be absorbed to create larger and larger companies and institutions. If the government was going to create a safety net for companies above a certain size, well, it certainly didn't pay to be smaller than that. Get big and you can do whatever you want. Take bigger risks and maybe even line your own pockets, if that's your thing. This too-big-to-fail mentality can apply to individuals as well. This is part of why we often see public figures getting a slap on the wrist instead of the guillotine, and why we see bankers who steal hundreds of millions from everyday people allowed to walk off, maybe having lost their job, but able to keep most or all of their ill-gotten gains. If the justice system destroyed these people as these people arguably deserve, if we were to keep punishment the same for everyone, that could have dire consequences for the industries in which these people operate. It could stifle innovation and participation in the banking and finance sectors. It could crush confidence in the government. It could lead to a slew of harsh regulations that make a country's financial sector, or whichever sector we're talking about here, uncompetitive with the rest of the world. It could cause riots in the streets if the people's preferred candidate, their preferred president, is punished by the new one who is taking office after them. These powerful people have made themselves important enough that they are too big to fail. They have a safety net that the rest of us do not have. They will be bailed out if everything goes sideways and they overplay their hand. They can be criminals of the highest order and do everything in public and still walk away with their prize when they get caught. This too-big-to-fail concept is just one of many mechanisms that people in power are able to use to keep themselves safe, even when the worst happens and their house of cards collapses around them. There's the long-standing practice of cronyism, for instance. Cronyism is the practice of putting your people, your family, your friends, people who are loyal to you, in positions of power and authority. And in its worst manifestations, these people are given these positions regardless of whether they're actually suitable choices for them. So it's not just a matter of being biased, it's often being biased to the point of disregard for aspects of your governance or of your business in favor of having loyal people in these positions that you feel you can trust, and who will have your back if you get caught doing something wrong. Often this approach to entrenching one's position is subtle, but not always. Jacob Zuma certainly made liberal use of it, as does current U.S. President Donald Trump. Richard Nixon's cronyism paid off for him in a dramatic fashion when, after he was impeached and stepped down before he could be investigated fully and kicked out, he was preemptively pardoned of any crimes he may have committed before a formal investigation into those crimes could be made by his successor, Gerald Ford. So he pulled Azuma there by making use of one of his cronies. He escaped without being punished for his crimes because of his friends in high places, friends that he put in those high places. Of course, sometimes the same or similar outcomes can be achieved beyond your own orbit by creating relationships with other powerful people, even if you didn't put them there and they therefore do not owe you any particular loyalty. You can create a relationship of mutual backscratching where you help each other build up each other's power and wealth and then come to rely on each other so strongly that it's in each person's best interest to keep their compatriot afloat and uncaught, unpunished. A variation on this method is something that we might call the mutually assured destruction approach, which involves essentially knowing where the bodies are buried, having dirt on someone else, and them knowing that you have it, so that if you go down, so will they. And in some cases, the same is then true in reverse, the implication being that you will support each other no matter what, because if you don't, if the other person goes down, if they are punished, then you too will be punished. Favors and debts can also play a role here, and many powerful people do what they can to indebt others to them, ensuring that either their next step or some need that they have in the future will be more easily accomplished by leveraging those that they have helped in the past by leveraging their own existing power. There are many ways for powerful people to tie themselves to other powerful people, And these networks, these webs of influence and power, help everyone who is tied up into it to maintain their power and influence. All those strings are connected, and if you vibrate one of them, or snip one of them, it tends to vibrate or cause destruction on somebody else's thread. It's also possible for people to maintain some semblance of their social position, even after taking a legal bullet of some kind so long as they have some other source of power alongside the one they lost. A powerful politician, for instance, might avoid being punished to the full extent of the law because they also happen to be very wealthy or very well connected or they happen to be very popular with the masses. These other sources of power stand as a stable threat against full destruction, even if one of their load-bearing columns are pulled out from under them. The final and perhaps most broad method of avoiding punishment, of floating above the common level of the law, is systemic. That is, the systems we have in place favor those with power in various ways. The legal system, for instance, has become complex enough that in most countries, those without legal backing, and skilled legal backing in particular, are at a substantial disadvantage. And to really lawyer up and to get the attention of the highest caliber legal entities, you need to have significant wealth and perhaps even prestige at your disposal. And that reality slants a system that is meant to be equitable and still is in some ways, but it slants it toward people who wield the requisite wealth and power and allows them to wring the most possible benefit out of that system. Our system of laws, too, have come to favor the wealthy and politically connected, even though it's less immediately evident how this has become the case. I would argue that part of the problem is the language that we use and the way that laws are made. The language we use to describe different crimes can conceal their relative impact. White-collar crime, for instance, sounds a lot less horrible than assault and battery, But the former often has thousands of times the destructive power of the latter. And our laws, over time, are shaped to reflect that bias. And that makes sense if you think about it. Who, after all, is making these laws? In general, it's people who are more likely to commit white-collar crimes, rather than people who are likely to rob a liquor store or punch a stranger. And that plays into one last piece of the systemic method of avoiding punishment. Those in power have every incentive to pull the ladder of justice up behind them. Doing so is kind of natural, if you think about it. It allows them to keep the power that they've attained, and it keeps them from being knocked down below the level of favoritism that they believe they've earned. Because of the influence and power they wield, however, this policy, which in most cases I seriously doubt, is passed with any ill will toward anyone else. It's not a hateful act, but rather a self-preservationist act. But it nonetheless increases inequality over time across broad swaths of society because of how it slowly but surely wears away at the safety net of the many in order to reinforce the safety net of the few. So, in answer to that question I asked earlier, why don't we treat leaders and other people in positions of power like we treat anyone else? I'd say that it's because the people in power make the rules, have connections with each other, know where the bodies are buried, have established themselves as being too big to fail, and have set themselves up to be lynchpins in some vital space. And they're also lawyered up pretty well, just in case. I personally think that it's a dick move to punch someone. It's possibly even horrible to punch someone, depending on the punch, the people involved, where the punch lands, and so on. But I think most people would agree. It's even worse to shoot someone. That takes things to another level. And that's true despite the fact that both a punch and a bullet fired from a gun are kinetic attacks. It's something hitting another something hard enough to cause damage. The only real difference is the bullet fired from the gun has massively more energy behind it than the punch. The average well-thrown, skillful karate punch has somewhere in the neighborhood of 150 joules of energy, while a projectile fired from a 12-gauge shotgun contains over 4,000 joules of energy. Both are kinetic strikes, but they are in completely different categories in terms of the type of attack they represent and the type of damage they can do. The same is true of, for example, comparing some type of minor fraud to the massive scale fraud that caused the financial crisis in 2008, or the scale of fraud committed by the president of a country. The crime is similar in a sense, but the difference in scale makes it a completely separate thing. And the way that we are divvying out justice today in most countries makes it seem as if we've decided that bullets are fine. And the person firing the gun may have their gun taken away, but otherwise won't be punished. But the person who throws a punch, they could get anything from severe bank account crippling fines to life within the criminal justice system. Law has been flipped to favor those wielding metaphorical guns and against those who can only muster metaphorical punches. Possibly the most disconcerting element of this entire storyline is that within politics, within economics, within many different fields, once you reach a certain point of influence, wield enough power, you achieve a status of near-untouchability you don't need to have a government or industry full of evil people to create this type of situation. It emerges fairly naturally, I think, if you have the right incentives in place and the right powers are granted to those who attain certain positions. But if you allow that natural occurrence to build up over time and result in this type of invulnerability and an unequal invulnerability at that, not something that everyone enjoys to one degree or another, but something that's only enjoyed by a very small group of people. That becomes a problem very quickly. Do you know what led to the French Revolution? The main cause commonly cited by historians was the rising social and economic inequality that was emerging between the ruling class and the regular plebes. What's more, those in power were mismanaging the economy failing to come up with solutions to a shift in environmental factors. They were running the national debt to new highs. And they were all following in lockstep with King Louis XVI, who was failing hard at politics, which was his only job. Does that sound familiar at all? I'm not saying it's time to go start investing in guillotine futures, but I mean, historically, inequality of this kind, combined with variables that lock that inequality into place and amplify it, formalize it as a normal state of affairs, that tends to end with heads rolling. The folks up top become immune to essentially any repercussion for their actions under the existing system, so those who have been crushed underfoot decide to change the system. And across the span of history, this has happened a whole lot. It seems like it may be prudent, then, for everyone involved, Those of us underfoot, but also those who are doing the stomping, whether intentionally or unintentionally, to unravel some of these disparities and decompress the social pressure cooker before things get out of hand. We do have options in how we achieve this. We can more heavily regulate certain industries. We can scramble the current set of incentives. We can increase the bureaucracy or change it around to create more checks and balances. We can somehow convince powerful people to create laws that hold powerful people accountable, and in fact even more accountable than the standard person because of the outsized influence that they hold, the increased damage they're capable of doing. Most of the standard solutions to this, though, are not super popular politically, and some, like convincing people in power to put themselves at a disadvantage, seems more than a little unlikely. These people did not achieve the power that they have by giving up their advantages. And it's a tough sell, I think, to regulate certain industries under many of the systems that we have today, as most of these systems allow for at least some kind of monetary influence on the system, whether directly to politicians or indirectly by influencing the public, which means it takes decades to get safety belts as a standard feature in cars And numerous industries, from big tobacco to big guns to, increasingly, big technology, are able to keep politicians in line by threatening their bottom line, threatening to fund their political competitors, or even more fundamentally, threatening to just not fund them next election cycle. It seems most likely to me that any change we want to see here will either result from a flurry of true believers entering politics, and starting up their own successful businesses, and changing the system from the inside. Or we will figure out asymmetric ways to approach this situation, methods that will allow us to change the incentives, if not the people. Maybe we reward and celebrate actions that lead to a sharing of power, or that elevate the non-powerful, rather than the opposite. Maybe we remove big-money donors from the political equation, giving anyone who wants to run for office the same amount of money to spend from government coffers to keep the playing field level while enforcing strict term limits and anti-self-enrichment policies from the ground level, starting locally and moving them up and up and up until they apply to the people who actually run things at the federal level. Maybe the current trend of outing and shaming bad behavior in public spaces like social networks and through traditional news media in some cases will be able to unravel some of the influence webs that have been woven behind the scenes. Maybe it will evolve in a direction that isn't horrifying, though a harmful mutation I think is absolutely possible as well, unfortunately. It's hard to say what might actually work here because it's difficult to know what will be acceptable to the people who are often able to quash efforts that they don't like before they come into full effect. What could we do to give those who seek power what they want but without allowing them to corrupt our systems in the trade-off? Or what would allow them to seek those ends safely and beneficially? perhaps amplifying their efforts even more, providing them with greater challenges, better psychological rewards beyond those that are currently available. How might we keep these particular attributes from arising in certain people, and then once those people take positions of power, allowing that attribute to rot the system from within? How might we phase out or alter certain aspects of our system to prevent that from happening? One of the key principles of liberal democratic systems of governance is that they should be flexible and malleable over time. They should provide citizens with the liberty to participate in the government as equals with others who participate, and should give the people the chance to evolve the system itself as morality, technological know-how, and political realities change around them. What these add-ons, which favor the higher-ups, do is harden systems that are meant to remain plastic. It keeps them from adjusting, because if they change, these people will risk losing their primacy, or part of what allows them to keep their primacy. And the unfortunate consequence of this group defending their advantages, like any of us would do, I would argue, is a wider and wider spread calcification of a system that needs to remain flexible to work optimally. The arteries are hardening, are thickening, and we need to keep that from happening, lest we find ourselves with a different system altogether, something that's far more prone to a metaphorical coronary incident. It doesn't seem reasonable in a system that depends on people acting rationally, which in the context of today's most common economic model means acting in their own self interest. It doesn't seem reasonable to expect a group of people who have attributes that have allowed them to acquire more power under such a model to act against their own self-interest. So where does that leave us? How do you reintroduce balance to a system that has become unbalanced when the pumps and levers meant to maintain equilibrium are controlled by one small group of people who are quite rationally, according to their standards of rationality, using them to reinforce and defend their own power? I don't have a real answer to that question. No answer that doesn't rely on some fundamental shift in government or some kind of revolution, at least. And I don't think either of those events is likely enough, or even necessarily desirable enough, that we would want to work them into our hopes and dreams and predictions. This perspective, though, this focus on the threads rather than just the patterns, is worth keeping in mind as we watch politics happen, watch technology evolve, watch society shift. It may be that some new thread emerges or becomes newly visible, something that can be followed and tugged on that might, even if only slowly, begin to right the ship, begin to nudge things back toward balance, and away from a path that could lead toward the many horrors for everyone involved, of a few-versus-the-many-style revolution. The book that I'd like to recommend today is a relatively new one. It's called Enlightenment Now. The subtitle is The Case for Reason, Science, Humanism, and Progress. This is a book by Steven Pinker. So, after an episode about mildly depressing subject matter, I think it's a good idea to bring some optimism into the mix with this recommendation. This is a book about human progress, essentially, all the good things that are happening in the world, and particularly the good things that are happening that we don't even realize are happening. Because of the short-sightedness of history, because of the business models that have long backed certain types of news coverage, which encourage us to focus on the plane crashes, but not the far greater number of planes that don't crash. And the shorthand summary here is that things are going pretty well. Really well, actually. We humans, as a species, are doing okay. And even though there are dramatic and sometimes cinematically horrible instances of things going badly, and there are massive inequalities across the board, there has, statistically speaking, taking into account all of the data that we have available, never been a better time to be alive. And that's in the context of every social stratum. So if you were asked by a time traveler, what time period, any time from now all the way back to the beginning of humanity, you would prefer to live in? And you would not know who you would be, where you would be born, what part of the world, into what type of family, if you'd be wealthy or poor, anything like that. You would not know when would be the best time to be alive. Statistically speaking, that time is now. Today is the absolute best time in human history to be alive. And this book is essentially a collection of evidence for that claim. And especially after all of the horribleness that, I don't know about you, that I hear about all day, every day. It is a breath of fresh air to have that argument not just made, but made with convincing supporting data points. So if you are looking for a rational reason to feel good about the world, might I suggest picking up a copy of Enlightenment Now by Steven Pinker. You can find out more about me and my work at Colin.io. You can find my blog at xllifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at let'snotethings.com Feel free to reach out on social media and say hello. I am at Colin is my name pretty much everywhere on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube and so on. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week.